Hello and welcome to the Euroactive Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euroactive's Agri-Food News Team. So this week uh, we'll be talking about the common agricultural policy. A huge uh, shock. That's yeah. going to be a huge shock to everyone after this last week, I'm sure. Yeah, that there was, uh, as you said, there was a um, provisional agreement on uh, the common agricultural policy reform. What are we going to do with ourselves, Gerardo? That's that's a that's a tricky question, actually. It's actually it's crazy because I've been following it for my entire time that I spent with you, actually. But so have you, no? It's been like three years. Yeah, yeah. Two years, three years. I, I actually covered even the the proposal, the first proposal of the government show party. Do you, does it make you feel a bit emotional? Well, no, because I mean, it's a, it's a never-ending topic, actually. <laughs> I know, of course. But like, to, you saw it all the way through from its inception to its near conclusion. I just wonder. Yeah, no, I mean, do you feel from, like you're from, losing a baby? Yeah, from from the emotional point of view, it's like it's like uh, I had the baby too. You know, I, I was in the room, uh, <laughs> shaking hands with the Portuguese minister, and uh, and uh, uh, you know, not uh, shaking hands in COVID time. Bumping, no, not in your bumping in elbows. The, that's an unfortunate uh, analogy. Uh, yeah, doing the elbow touch, whatever it is. <laughs> um, because actually, yeah, I mean, we covered that a lot. We kind of become experts of uh, this very technical stuff obsessive uh, i would say yeah yeah it's the end of a journey uh, but it's not really the beginning the, of another one yeah, the beginning <laughs> of another, because now there's the the issue with the national plans uh, uh, actually the the commission recently there, there was the agri-fish council this week on uh, monday and tuesday the last one of the portuguese presidency yeah we should uh, probably give some background yeah and the commission uh, um, was asked if it was possible, it would be, it would be possible to uh, reject the national plan on the basis of the Green Deal, right? Mm-hmm. And w- w- what they reply, Natasha? Because you, <laughs> right. you, 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 pub- you, you published an article on that. Well, he replied that the only basis to, to reject, like outright reject a national strategic plan would be if it didn't comply legally on some kind of legal grounds, mm-hmm. then said, and obviously the Green Deal isn't legal. Um, and so he basically said, you know, he doesn't he doesn't imagine or foresee any scenario where they would outright uh, reject a strategic plan based on on, on the Green Deal. And but but even instead, in general, well, well, actually, even in general, yeah. But instead, he would, um, you know, they would be engaging in constant dialogue with member states to try and improve the member plans, the, the member plans, the member states' uh, national strategic plans. Um, so yeah, quite interesting. I mean, kind of interesting statement, I would say from the out, from the outset looking in, um, there were many topics actually, um, in the agenda of the Agri-Fish Council, you can check on uh, our website, uh, youractive.com, uh, for, uh, the coverage. For instance, there was a proposal for ban, for a ban of, uh, fuel farming, uh, but yeah, the main point of the agenda was, of course, the um, endorsement of the agriculture minister of the common agricultural policy uh, deal, uh, which was finally struck um, uh, last Friday. Um, last what a fr- way to start the weekend that was. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and of course, I mean, the entire episode will be a sort of uh, cap special. 
another a recap. one. And a recap. Yeah, a recap on the cup. Another one because, I mean, it's like... Uh, Millions of them. Yeah. And uh, we're trying to um, bring you some detail, you know, lots of detail. But we're going to have a lot of uh, guests with us, uh, helping us, giving all the information uh, of the m most interesting aspect. Because, I mean, mm. communication policy is huge, you know, it's tree yeah. regulation. And yeah, we have to unpack the cap. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. So uh, we kick off our uh, episode today uh, with um, actually a, a good friend of ours, um, and uh, who, who's also uh, would you be would you be offended if I call you a senior agriculture? Oh, <laughs> I was going to say he's an old hat at this, yeah. you know, an expert. An expert. Oh my God! No, no. Uh, you're an expert. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. If you want, call me as you want. I mean, oh it's, no, you uh, offended our guest, Gerardo. It's, it's, it's not very good were. podcast etiquette, I have to say. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, it's, it's others that okay. have to say that. It's not me. So t today with us, uh, um, we have uh, uh, Angelo Di Mambro, who's a reporter uh, for agriculture reporter for uh, Italian news agency ANSA, uh, Informatore Agrario, an Italian specialized media on agriculture. Uh, thanks for being with us, Angelo. Thank you for calling me. Thank you. <laughs> and you can give us actually a bit of uh, not an overview, but I mean, considering that you covered also other uh, common agricultural policy negotiations uh, like the previous one for, for the previous uh, programming program. Um, I, I would like to ask you, first of all, uh, what's your take on uh, um, the outcome of the negotiations and if you can, uh, you know, find some parallel on, on uh, precedent negotiation that you covered in your uh, experience? The first thing that comes to my mind is that uh, we have a CAP reform that is quite conservative in terms of policy tools. In, in the end, it's the same CAP of, of 20 years ago. Okay, we, we had adjustments, but in the end, we have direct payments per hectare. There are uh, support to income, uh, market measures, and rural development. This is something that uh, we know, uh, we have been knowing for, for, for 10 to 20 years. At the time, 20 years ago, it was a, a real revolution to have an income support. But now, I don't know. And these features, I mean, it's since 2018, since the, uh, the presentation of the proposal of the, the CAP reform, the proposal on CAP reform has never been revolutionary in policy too. It was done on purpose, you know. Yeah, it was it was a strange period. It was mm -hmm. the end of of Juncker commissioning, and a question that I asked many times to then Commissioner Philogan: Do you think that we'll get the result, the DCAP reform done in one year, with the uh, European election that uh, um, happened in in, in twenty nineteen? So uh, it was a, basically a, a reform not on policy tools, but it was a reform on governance, on who decides what. It was basically transfer of powers and responsibilities from Brussels uh, to member states. Then in, in 2019-2020, the Green Deal arrived and it happened something strange. The Commission asked the European Parliament and the Council to make the needed changes to align the CAP reform to the Green Deal. Instead of, I don't know, withdrawing the reform proposal 
and presenting another one aligned with its new political priority. I mean, the Green Deal was the political priority of the Commission. They basically ask, fix the, the fix the gap. Make the best of a bad deal, basically. <laughs> it was quite uh, unique in my experience. Uh, and since then, the debate focused on the environmental side of the policy and the debate totally neglected the governance part. That was there. Because it's not for chance that the most controversial point in the negotiation uh, on the, on the, the concluded... Uh, uh, last week, was about embedding the green architecture in the national plans. Uh, it was where the two sides, the two main changes, uh, the governance change and the greening of the policy, collided. Um, now we have the reform, and while I think that nuance of green, let's say, of the CAP perform, performance, I mean, the, the, uh, if it will deliver, it will largely depend on on, on what uh, member states will decide to implement on the ground. But the policy tools issue and tackling it is somehow essential for, for a CAP might be more up-to-date. Um, so is a structure mainly designed in the late 1990s, still fit for purpose? More precisely, um, do the direct payments per hectare and the way they are distributed uh, make sense as tools for farmers, and are they understandable by citizens? That's the elephant in the room, basically, you know, that I have. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think that it will, it will pass so long time before we start the discussion again. And I hope uh, that the, 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 the next time it will be the right one to start discussing these policy aspects that were... Uh, somehow absent. Tashi, remember you, you actually wrote an article on uh, the future of um, the farming subsidies for the UK after mm. Brexit, no? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They already asked this uh, this question. Uh, so basically they, they want to uh, focus more on uh, rural development, you know. Yeah, they basically want to do away more or less with direct payments and move towards, at least this is England, but they obviously got the devolved nation, ah, sorry, nations. Sorry, England. Yeah, be careful there. Yes. Yeah, indeed, indeed. indeed yeah. <laughs> Tread lightly there. No, I'm, they're actually talking about it all, all over the UK, but the, the in England they've started um, actually trying to work towards, um, they've proposed to do away pretty much with, I think completely actually, with direct payments mm. and move towards rural development. Um, which is obviously, you know, something that's been spoken about before in the past. The UK was a proponent of it back when, back in the glory days when we were in the EU. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder maybe, Angela, what your take is on that and whether you think that's maybe the future direction for the EU's cap as well in the future. Usually the, the experts in the commission, they say, no, uh, income support is still valid because it gives stability. We have... The, the increasing risk of climate change, and this is is a is a systemic risk. Is on income, is on uh, for, for parasites and pests. Uh, is on. Uh, we have also environmental issues that are not um, tackled in a sufficient way. In the old era, we were used to to have a, a trade dispute that was the starting from I don't know hormone beef and staying in the food sector. That was the the, the, the hormone beef um, trade issue uh, dispute between the EU and US. Uh, with the Russian embargo, 
and then also with the Trump administration measures, we have seen that food sector can be hit by restrictions to export. And so decreasing level of income from political re- reasons. I mean, that reasons that are nothing to do, that has nothing to do with the, with the sector reason, with the economic reason. We have seen a kind of separation and a kind of uh, very strong and harsh opposition between farmers and citizens, between farmers and environmentalists. But the link and the connection between farming and and society maybe is worth some resources more also from the EU. The base payment per hectare is shrinking. I mean, it's it's 25% of the direct payment will go to environmental, um, to eco-schemes. This means that the basic payment, the basic support is shrinking. So it's already changing. The, the next reform, we will discuss about policy, not about old stuff, really, because in some um, aspects, the debate resembled the eternal debate between the, the, the farmers, polluters, and uh, urban dwellers, environmentalists. And this is really something that I did not appreciate. I mean, it's old story. The, the, the rural band, the, sorry, the rural areas uh, strategy that was presented today uh, is worth of more resources, more attention, because the, the development is not something that happens in a sector. Development is something that happens uh, in a place. And as we just uh, said, uh, green architecture was one of the main issues uh, on the table of negotiators. Actually, it was uh, the we can say one of the point was basically the one that led to a failure in talks in May. You remember? Mm-hmm. I do indeed. The collapse. Was such a sad moment where we realized our final cap down hashtag was. <laughs> premature. We, we were almost there. We were almost there, <laughs> ready for becoming legendary more than what we already are please we're already there yeah so you remember actually the the talks collapsed on this last proposal this proposal from the council related to the eco schemes yes so indeed eco schemes are basically uh, the percentage of common agricultural policy direct payments earmarked for environmental friendly agricultural practices. So basically the green portion of uh, the first pillar. And uh, the the issue was basically where to set the bar. Um, Mm. You remember in the mandate that uh, the European Parliament uh, gave to the negotiators, the Parliament negotiators, uh, the bar was set at 30%. So 30% of the direct payment should have been directed to uh, green measures. The council wanted 20. Mm-hmm. And uh, we knew... We all saw where this was going. Yeah. <laughs> we You'd knew. have to be a mathematician to figure this out, do you? And in the end, they, <laughs> they, <laughs> they reached a compromise on 25 or so. No. <laughs> yeah. but, um, for the whole period. But the issue was... Um, uh, about the floor mechanism, mm, this floor mechanism. So sneaky tactics that was going yeah. on here. Yeah, 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 indeed, indeed. So it's basically uh, a floor that allows the spending of unused funds between, uh, you know, the 20 and 
So the, the floor was set at 20 in the end. Uh, and so these unused funds between 20 or, and 25, you know, could be considered as um, more flexible. Mm-hmm. But of course, in order to be flexible, they need to be compensated by the end of the programming period through some kind of compensation mechanisms. So it's, it's a bit complex, but originally the floor was, was set at 18% and this 18% floor baseline, let's say, uh, led to the failure of talks. So in the end, they found this compromise. You just floored me with your knowledge there. <laughs> we can <laughs> say that actually who won on this battle, basically. You've got the 25% ring fencing. So that was the, you know, what they yeah. both were happy with. But then there was and then there was this kind of learning period that was introduced with the 20% floor, which is only 2% more than what the council proposed. The Vanderman wanted something like 22 or 23%. Yeah. So yeah. it's not a clear winner in this one, I would say. I wouldn't say it's a draw, but it's more like... It's not a draw, I would say. It's definitely leaning towards... The council. The, the council. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one w- would actually have imagined that the parliament uh, would have uh, got the 30% in the end. So uh, mm. it's still... Um, yeah, it was an opening, an opening kind of offer, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 indeed. And also the other ring fencing um, that was decided during the negotiations was the one related to the rural development. So basically the green spending mm-hmm. in the second pillar. This one's got a clear winner. This yeah. one. There is absolutely no, no debating who came out on top here, is there? Yeah, and, and, and the council, of course. Because, I mean, the council. Uh, the council, the council was... wanted, yeah, for background, the council wanted at least 35% ring fencing. The parliament wanted at least 37%. And where did we end up? I mean, we should have ended up at 36 What happened here? Eh, they they weren't uh, convincing enough, let's say. Well, clearly. I mean, and, you know, spoiler alert, they ended up on 35%. On so there we go. It's the council. The council. No, were... the parliament, I mean, the main argument of the parliament is that the 37.5% was the percentage in the transitional uh, period. Mm, so the mm-hmm. one that actually was embedded in the next generation EU. Yeah. Uh, so um, basically, they they didn't want any, uh, let's say, step back to the next generation position. Mm. But in the end, uh, it didn't work. This is one of the moments that you think you have to remind yourself and everyone listening, I suppose. You know, when you talk about these one percent differences, I was saying, you know, it should have been thirty six percent, and it sounds like nothing. But when it's a such a monumentally huge policy with such a big pot of money it's actually you know it's a big it's a big difference it's true it's true. i mean we're talking about the package of uh, 340 uh, billion yeah a third uh, of the third of the bu- budget a third of the budget of the, of the entire EU budget yeah when we're talking about as you say when we talk about talk about one percent sounds <laughs> like nothing doesn't it but it's kind of <laughs> And another aspect of this green architecture was one of the main requests of the European Parliament. We remember it was embedded in the uh, mandate um, voted by the plenary in October. And it was the alignment uh, of the common agriculture policy with the Green Deal. Mm -hmm. Initially, this was basically an attempt to put the targets, you know, the many targets that are... um, 
uh, included in the farmable strategy, like biodiversity uh, and the biodiversity yeah. strategy too, like the pesticide reduction, the yeah. uh, organic twenty five percent of um, organic uh, farmed organically in Europe by I don't remember the year, but anyway, um, yeah, all, all the targets set in the farm to fork strategy and the biodiversity strategy, uh, recognizing some article of the Common Agricultural Policy. Uh, in the end, it didn't go like this because uh, they got the this recognition, but in a recital, which is at the very beginning of the regulation, but it's not a proper article. You know, when you yeah, it's when basically you, a weaker commitment. Yeah, weaker commitment, and it's uh, basically you know after it's it's the the part with the letters. You know, uh, point A, point B. For instance, uh, you cannot actually uh, go to the European Court of Justice uh, to basically uphold them. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Mm. As you said, it's weaker. But still, it's a, it's a, it's still a, a mention. They managed to sneak a mention in there, which mm. was the aim, wasn't it? I mean, just not a super strong mention. So if you had to talk about winners or losers here, I mean, where would you? It's tough because, as you said before, farm to fork strategy is is um, a vision, no? Yeah. It includes, of course, um, some uh, revision of uh, legislation, like the pesticide reduction is an, is an actual revision of uh, of the suit directive the sustainable use mm-hmm. of uh, pesticide directive but still i mean uh, it's something that will come in uh, two or three years mm-hmm. uh, while the common agricultural policy uh, will enter into force uh, in 2023 mm-hmm. so i can understand the legal basis of uh, the council opposition of course we're talking about a, pol- a political objective so Lawmakers uh, could have put a political objectives in a, in a law if they wanted, <laughs> but uh, you're saying they didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would it would have been ambitious, very mm-hmm. ambitious. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the end, I mean, it was a result then because I mean, it's, it it wasn't of course included in. The, mm-hmm. We 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 need to remind that the Green Deal came after the uh, or, uh, initial proposal of the Commission on Commercial Policy. And we actually spoke to uh, the chair of the Envy Committee, so that's Pascal Canfin, to hear his take on the Green Deal alignment of the CAP reform. The deal we found on the CAP will allow a much better alignment uh, between agricultural policies and uh, the Green Deal uh, objectives and legislations. Why? For two reasons. The first reason is that uh, we have a specific provision in an article plus in a recital that will make sure that the strategic national plans that are the the heart of the CAP will be assessed by the Commission uh, uh, whether they are uh, consistent with the Union's environmental and climate legislations. And if they are not consistent with the uh, EU environmental legislations, then uh, they will be uh, not approved by the Commission. We moved uh, the relationship between environmental policies and the CAP from past situation where 
the CIP had to contribute to, it's the, the legal wording of the previous, or let's say the current CIP, contributing to, to a wording which is consistent with. And of course, it's a massive change. It's a massive change because it's very easy to contribute to an environmental objective, even if we do not deliver on climate neutrality, you do not deliver on bio, no, no biodiversity loss, and so on and so on. But being consistent with the union's legislative objectives uh, regarding climate neutrality or regarding uh, nature protection, restoration of lands, and so on and so on, that will be another story. So that's why uh, that's the core of the change of the relationship between uh, the Green Deal and the CAP. The second element is uh, the eco-schemes. And the parliament uh, didn't fight for uh, the highest possible number because uh, 27, 28, 30% of greenwashing, it's still greenwashing. What we fought for is a figure, let's say, in the middle of the situation between the parliament and the council, so around 25 but with robustness. And we have this robustness. We have the point system, meaning that you will not just uh, make one eco-scheme and you get uh, all the 25% of the Pillar 1 money. We have the robustness because uh, the Commission will have a strong say in the list and the assessment of the uh, robustness of the eco-schemes. And we have the robustness because we have the green channel. The green channel means that even if you do not spend the uh, 25% on uh, eco-schemes, let's say uh, 22% because uh, the farmers does not, do not subscribe, I would say, the eco-schemes, then the remaining money has to be spent for green purposes. So extra bonuses for the farmers uh, uh, having eco-schemes or uh, uh, more uh, organic uh, subsidies, whatever in Pillar 2, whatever, but it's a green channel. So that's why we made sure that 25% of Pillar 1 is dedicated to green spending, which was definitely not the case before, as we all know, because no figure of that kind was existing. So if I take only these two elements, and there are many others, but only these two elements, which are, to my view, uh, critical, uh, that makes a big difference. That makes a big difference between the current CAP and the next CAP. Of course, everything is not perfect, and uh, except that it's a compromise. And regarding my own objectives and the NV position, I had to compromise, obviously, otherwise there would be no CAP at all. But we secured these two key elements that will make a big difference between the current CAP and the next one. That's why I will be uh, supportive of the compromise we found when we will have to vote on it uh, in the parliament. And another part, we're talking about this green architecture, another um, key aspect of this that's been raised a lot, especially by um, NGOs, um, is this issue of the GAIACs. So the GAIAC, it stands for Good Agricultural and Environmental Conditions, basically. Um, and there's a number of these different GAIACs that have been been a bit of a sticking point, shall we say, um, in these negotiations. And actually, we got in touch with one of the NGOs that's very active on all things CAP and GAIAC. Um, and we spoke with Harriet Bradley um, from BirdLife about these GAIACs, what they are and what happened and what this means for the future of agriculture. So GAIAC standards stands for Good Agricultural and Environmental Conditions in the CAP jargon. And these are essentially what you have to do if you want to get the main cap subsidies. 
So um, the basic amount that you will get for each hectare of land that you have. They, they cover things like habitat for nature on farms, soil protection, crop rotation and grassland protection. Um, and they're important because they're the rules that everybody has to comply with if they want to get the, mo the, the bulk of the, the cap subsidies that they're entitled to. So this is unlike other measures like eco schemes, which are voluntary to enter into. And so what this means is that they will impact practices on the largest area of land and therefore what they require um, beneficiaries of CAP money to do will affect whether the CAP will keep subsidising intensive or harmful practices like monoculture farming um, or whether these will be restricted by the requirements of these GAIACs. Actually, the major reason, one of the main reasons why we're so unhappy with the CAP deal is precisely because uh, in the end, these standards will be very low, in, even lower than um, what the Commission was proposing. And many of the loopholes that are in the current CAP that allow the subsidies to um, keep going to intensive farming uh, have just been put back in. So, for example, there's no requirement for all farms to have enough natural habitat to support wildlife. There's no requirement for uh, meaningful crop rotation. Permanent grasslands are not adequately protected, so a proportion of these can continue to be ploughed up. And finally, the CAP subsidies will most likely be able to continue to go to farming on drained peatlands, which is a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions. However, um, member states do have to further define what the GAIACs actually mean. And they can also propose additional GAIAC standards if they wish. And obviously the risk is that they will try to use all the loopholes that they have been negotiating in the deal and to do the least possible under these standards. At the same time, they are going to be required to justify their choices of GAIAX to the European Commission with respect to the CAP's environmental objectives and also uh, environmental legislation. So if the European Commission is very strict with the member states uh, at this stage, then there is obviously still some scope for improvement. So you've spoken a lot about the environmental aspects of this cap reform and the environmental conditionality, but there was another kind of conditionality that was introduced kind of late into the game, wasn't there, Gerardo? Yeah, yeah, it was actually uh, quite late in the game, as you said, because mm. it, was, uh, it wasn't included in the Commission's proposal. Indeed. In 2018, uh, but actually was uh, put on the table by the Parliament. It was it was included in uh, an amendment that passed in the plenary uh, last. What are we October. talking about here? We're talking about the social dimension or the social dimension of the communication policy. So hmm. the social, the so-called social conditionality. Yeah. Um, so basically linking the direct payment to the respect of the. A basic uh, labor uh, law when it comes to, for instance, um, a workforce on the mm. farms. Which is interesting uh, because, as ministers pointed out repeatedly, this is quite far out of the remit of, you know, traditionally of, of the cap. 
Indeed. it wasn't linked to any social elements. It, um, that's why, for instance, some some people are uh, actually speaking of a third pillar of the cap. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the first pillar is direct payment. This is kind of the butter and bread of um, of the farming subsidies, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's uh, and then there's the rural development. It was quite an um, an innovation uh, came uh, uh, ten years ago, mm-hmm. but it's more about the potential that this inclusion of social conditionality could have in the in the communication policies to come. No, it is a whole new kind of branch of it, isn't it? You know, a different, a new new kettle of fish. I would say. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So, <laughs> Do you know that expression? No, no I like it. I like it. It's, it's more common fisheries policy than communication policy, but um, <laughs> still, still, we we're covering that too. Uh, but um, yeah, so basically. It's not that much, doesn't seem that much because, I mean, we're, talk, we're talking about the implementation uh, phase of this uh, social conditionality concept uh, to start on, on a voluntary basis in 2023 and on a month, you know, becoming mandatory starting from 2025. Mm-hmm. But there's this uh, two-year rendezvous clause, uh, that's the name. Rendezvous clause. Uh, yeah. So basically the that. commission is asked to monitor the impact of this mechanism on, uh, of course, on worker conditions. But they have to come up with a study and, you know, potentially with a proposal to uh, enlarge the scope of this uh, uh, social dimension, for instance, including uh, the condition of uh, migrant workers. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of potential, which is a huge a huge issue in in farming, migrant and seasonal workers, um, you know, upholding their rights and figuring out who's doing what where. Um, indeed, indeed. And actually, to talk a little bit more about this um, this social conditionality, we spoke with Enrico Somalia um, from EFAT, so that's the the trade union that deals with um, agriculture. And uh, they've been really active on this issue. And so he's here to explain, this is what he said about social conditionality. The inclusion of uh, social conditionality in the political deal on the common agricultural policy is certainly great news for millions of farm workers in Europe. And it is an important victory of the trade union movement and of many civil society organizations that have uh, really supported this fight. Um, farm workers are never featured in the common agricultural policy, despite the improvement of their living standard is actually of one of the cap main objectives according to the treaties. And despite the fact that agriculture is one of the most challenging and precarious sectors of the economy, with uh, high levels of undeclared work, uh, poor health and safety standards, and uh, deplorable housing conditions, uh, particularly for migrant workers and for seasonal workers. So for the first time in history, we can definitely say that the EU institutions have agreed on a cap reform that uh, doesn't overlook this reality anymore and takes into account the conditions of millions of workers that uh, really, thanks to their outstanding dedication, ensure that food is available on our table also throughout this disgraceful pandemic. Um, The support of the European Parliament has been, of course, uh, crucial throughout this process. We didn't manage to get uh, everything we were demanding for as trade unions, but we are really confident in the fact that uh, uh, if well implemented, social conditionality, as it has been agreed, can really become uh, an effective tool to to increase labour standards in agriculture. 
Um, we regret, of course, to see that because of the position of the Council, uh, member states will be obliged to start social conditionality only from 2025. But uh, it will be possible, of course, uh, to start uh, also from 2023. And uh, we will be very active together with our affiliates to ensure that this is the case in each and every member state, because we believe that this is absolutely possible. We have to remain vigilant, of course, in the upcoming weeks and days because uh, important elements and key wording will still be discussed and agreed during technical meetings. And then, of course, we have to pay a lot of attention to what is happening then at national level. It's also important to remind that uh, together with the inclusion of social conditionality, other uh, elements, other social elements are now part of the deal. There is a new role for farm advisory services to provide information to farmers on working conditions. And uh, uh, member states will also have the opportunity to promote the improvement uh, of working condition uh, also as part of their sectoral intervention. Finally, uh, I must say that uh, as if at, uh, we also regret uh, that it was not possible to achieve a more ambitious deal on the, on the green architecture because, I mean, the fight against climate change is, uh, is vital for our planners and for future generations. But it's also very important to protect jobs and workers' rights. Uh, so a more positive outcome on the environmental dimension would have, of course, made our uh, judgment even more positive. But we will certainly be extremely active to ensure that what has been achieved for the first time on social aspect represents really a right step towards a more socially just agricultural sector in Europe. And um, there are also other uh interesting points that we can uh, touch on in the next minutes and of course one of these it's about the um, redistribution of the cap spending because there were some concerns in the past so for instance one of the main innovation is this mandatory redistributive payments of at least 10 percent mm-hmm. of uh, direct payments yeah so it's, it's again it's it's a way to target the support um But, you know, when we're talking about targeting of support, there's also another huge elephant in the room, which is this uh, internal convergence concept. Yeah, this idea of internal convergence, I mean, it's, it, it's a little bit complicated, but it's basically, I mean, convergence is this process of kind of redistributing, um, evening out the money, maybe across, across either member states, but also within member states. Because in some member states, you know, generally speaking, the older ones, um, some of them have this kind of historical hangover from previous caps, which mean that for various reasons, um, some farmers get more money per hectare than other farmers. Um, and that's something that it's only really still an issue for certain member states. But where it is an issue, it's quite contentious. Lots of member states have actually already completed they say completed internal convergence meaning basically it's completely evened out between farmers um but one member state where they they've this has been an issue for a number of years is ireland um they started the process of redistribution but you know they're only at something like 65% i think off the top of my head um and um basically the parliament was pushing for all member states to have 100% internal convergence for everyone to achieve that and actually what they ended up with um at the end of the day was closer to what well, actually wasn't closer to it was exactly what the council asked for which was 85% so all payments being at least 85% of the average unit amount and as it was such an issue for Ireland 
Um, we actually spoke with Irish MEP Colm Markey to hear his take on uh, the conclusions when it comes to internal convergence. For Ireland, convergence has been one of the most controversial parts of CAP. I suppose for one thing, it set one farmer against the other. One farmer was set to gain at the other's expense where traditionally productive agriculture was losing out to more extensive agriculture. One of the concerns is that those farmers in the productive sector, I suppose, had a whole industry behind them, whether it be processing in the beef sector or dairy. There was jobs and employment and a multiplier effect in the economy that was set to lose out. I suppose the reality with convergence is it's it's someone described it to me as a ball rolling down a hill. It had already started in 2013 and, and you weren't going to stop it at this stage. But the key thing is the rate of convergence and how quick it happened. If you were to go to 100% convergence at this stage, it would probably threaten the viability of some of those commercial farmers who, in a lot of cases, were of a significant scale and may employ staff on their farms and, as I say, have the multiplier effect in the economy. And if you threaten those, you threaten not only their own situation, but the, the, the situation of, let's say, employees and, and the industry as a whole. So it was vital that um, we didn't overly impact on those, those farms and uh, reduce their competitiveness. And I suppose the, the fact that it was an 85% convergence took account of that. I think 100% convergence would really have challenged those farmers. And the fact that we've gone with 85, it's, it's probably a, a fair compromise. Like it was at 60% before this, to go to 85% is probably more or less a halfway step to complete convergence. And I'd expect that probably to be on the agenda for the next cap reform. But at 85%, it's given those farmers a chance. It's allowing the other farmers, the more extensive farmers, it's helping them, if you like, in terms of the viability. And I think as a reasonable compromise, it's something that um, I think is probably a fair, fair landing position to finish up at. The second key area is probably the whole area of the eco-schemes. This is one that um, obviously everybody is watching and I suppose the, the whole trick here is going to be part of the national strategic plans to ensure that the eco-schemes are effective but uh, practical as well, that are uh, implementable at farm level. And I think that's that is, that's the big challenge. But I think there probably is enough scope and certainly from an Irish perspective, the Irish Department of Agriculture have put forward a number of schemes that would be potential eco-schemes that they hope to include in their strategic plan. And I think they should be workable. And once the, once the schemes are implementable and practical, they, I think farmers will engage with them quite effectively. We can basically have um, an eternal podcast. We could be here for hours. <laughs> for hours. Literally hours. <laughs> so, you know. All the ins and outs of all the drama of the whole cap. I mean, that would be a saga. Yes, I, indeed, indeed. Mm. So what we can uh, point out, ultimately, uh, is um, that, uh, for instance, this uh, couple payment uh, support uh, that was set in the end at 30% of the direct payment with uh, an addition of 2% per uh, protein crops, which seems super, super technical, but actually it's, it was one of the main controversial issues because we know that there are some countries that are not super in favor of this um, support linked to the production. Mm -hmm. So they had to negotiate a bit on this. 
Uh, and the other aspect that we like to um, highlight is the final decision to increase the young farmers' support. After all, obviously, this is looking to the future, the yeah. for the next seven years. So Indeed. we're talking about the new farmers coming through. I mean, there's a massive focus on young farmers, new farmers. Indeed. Generational renewal. How many ways can I find to say that? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 indeed. It, it, it's probably it's, uh, <laughs> the problem, let's say. There was this week the, the launch of the new vision of the EU mm. for rural areas, which is also linked to the problem of uh, the population of uh, rural areas, of course, uh, caused by the, the, the fact that young people are not um, that... Um, how can I say, I'm not that uh, happy with, being, with, with ah. being farmers, you know, which is, well, which is sounds yeah. crazy for you, for instance. It, well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound that crazy, actually. I mean, it's a pretty thankless. I mean, in some ways, it's such a fulfilling. Oh, you're going to set me off now into my spiel. But in some ways, it's so fulfilling. And in other ways, it's so thankless. And so it's not such a difficult. I mean, all my experience is working on different farms. It, it, it's so challenging you know you can kind of see why it's maybe not super appealing to to young people in some respects in other respects being close to nature being outside being active being you know all these things contributing to food security feeding the world obviously great but definitely I mean it's it is just an enormously challenging job and it's not a job actually it's a it's a lifestyle isn't it um see I told you you were gonna set me off no, 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 no. It wasn't. It wasn't a trap. It was just. Uh, I just want to know your take on that because of. Uh... Oh, you got it. It's it's a hard, it's a hard industry to commit yourself to, and you got livestock. I mean, you're you know, you're not traveling the world and taking off whenever you feel like it, and you know, it's incredibly difficult. Like like um, an agricultural reporter, for instance. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, no, actually, but nowhere. <laughs> well, thanks to COVID, but anyway. Thanks for yeah, indeed. Yeah, there was a time, but now back in the uh, glory days, it's over. Uh, and yeah, that's why um, coming back to coming back to short policy, um, they negotiators in the end agreed on setting a minimum of three percent of national uh, envelopes for direct payments to fund. Um, young farmers through mm -hmm. this complementary income support, uh, but also um, through some um, targeted aid, for instance, for for startups. Mm -hmm. um, with with also a weighting factor of fifty percent, which is quite good. Um, so in the end, uh, yeah, it wasn't it, it was ambitious, but not that much. But still, it's it's. Um, um, an interesting uh, uh, innovation because it's mm -hmm. something new and uh, it's an important decision and we uh, and who better to speak to on this we spoke to uh, the very newly elected I think just the other day elected um, president of Young Farmers Association Seja so that's Diana Lenzi and this is what Diana had to say Seja the European Council of Young Farmers was happy to acknowledge on Monday while in the midst of its own electoral process, that after three long and complicated years, an agreement was finally reached on the cap reform. Young farmers and all farmers have been waiting eagerly and with some concern for the legislators to finalize this reform that will affect and impact their day-to-day -day work that will put them on the forefront 
of the battle of sustainability, introducing new measures and instruments, but also reallocating resources that have been so far necessary to stabilize farmers' income. The incredible body of young farmers I now have the honor to represent is working strenuously every day to build a better, healthier, more sustainable farming sector for the future of Europe. That is why it is so important that legislation and policies work to enable and support us to deliver and succeed. European farming is in critical need for generational renewal and young farmers want to ensure its safety, its prosperity, rejuvenate it for the benefit of all. Generational renewal can't be considered a mere objective like others because there is no possibility of achieving EU's ambitions on the fronts of sustainability, economic competitiveness, climate action and social inclusion without a new generation of determined, resourceful and skillful farmers. This is why we hope that the higher support granted to young farmers is only the starting point to a greater collaboration. We are happy that co-legislators have agreed to allocate a minimum of 3% of direct payments from the national envelopes for young farmers. This increase will be allocated to funding complementary income support, increased budget for first installation aid, and for investments brought forward by young farmers with a weighing factor of 50%. And all of this is necessary for youth that wants to set up and power up a farm, maybe from scratch or through succession. This important decision constitutes a major step towards providing young farmers with adequate tools to further develop their farming activities while benefiting better living conditions. We cannot begin to imagine a future for the farming sector if we don't ensure a dignified livelihood to young farmers who want to get involved in agriculture. Now it's crucial, and SEJA will be vigilant and close to its members in the process, that every member state will align within their national strategic plan all instruments at their disposal to enable the achievement of the CAP generational renewal objective. The flexibility offered by the new delivery system of the national strategic plans must not undermine the unity of the greater European farming and must instead strive to ensure coherence and consistency. I must also say with some disappointment that SEJA and the European Young Farmers regret that co-legislators did not keep a minimum age limit of 40 years old in the Young Farmers definition. This could undermine the level playing field across the EU and jeopardize the consistency of the performance model, which is so important if we want to see European farming succeed as one. So that's all from us this week. And this week, like every week, the Euractive Agri-Food podcast was produced by Euractive's Agri-Food news team. That's Gerarda Fortuna and Natasha Foote, with the support of our podcast producer, Evie Curie. And you can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms. That's Apple, Amazon, Spotify and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week.